Hey, welcome to part two of Accursed Growth. In this section, you'll hear from Rebecca Lund and Jon Oren Grimm as they discuss how the literature presented so far can help us expand our notion of growth. And as before, through the magic of audio editing, we are back in the Royal Festival Hall or the Black Diamond or something. Enjoy! Hello again! Hello. Welcome to the second half. This is where we're going to try and um, unpack everything we've just gone through. Um, and I'd like to introduce the panel who will be doing this. Um, we have Jan Owen Grimm, who is the uh, founder of the initiative uh, Sword Snack, and one of the architects behind the Extensive Philosophy Academy in uh, the Central Library, and Rebecca Lund, who's just completed some postdoctoral research at Oxford University. Um, in uh, education and neoliberalism and the intersections of various different things which I can't quite concisely express now and that's my problem. Gender. Gender. Gender is the key <laughs> thing to this. Yes. But it's how, how can I express this? I don't know. Anyway, um, so we're going to kick things off with um, a presentation which uh, tries to unfold some of the ideas tonight. Starting with uh, Bjorn, yeah. if you'd like to take it away. All right, uh, I'm going to stand. Well, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm happy to be back. Actually, the last time I was here was approximately uh, a year ago, where I also uh, talked about the tie uh, in the, uh, the story of the eye. I'm happy to be back again and talk uh, more about the tie. This time, not the uh, uh, story of the eye, but uh, the general economy, because there's so much more to the tie than just uh, eggs and, and Europe and so on. <laughs> um, so, uh, but I'm going to talk about the general uh, economy. Uh, I'm going to make a, a, a very short introduction to what it is. And then, obviously, I talked with Rebecca about how we're going about this. So I'm going to introduce this, and then I'm going to move on to how this affects uh, the construction of identity, uh, and then pointing towards some kind of gender perspective that isn't included in Bataille's work, but I think if you think along the lines of Bataille, there's a great potential and, um, in doing that. Uh, so, uh, so it's going to be a very uh, brief uh, introduction to the, the concept of uh, general uh, economy uh, from the book uh, Cursed Share. Uh, uh, available at the bar. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, of course... Uh, Three books and three books. Oh, I'm going to yes. um, so I'm going to move from my notion of the general economy and growth towards uh, the eroticism of Georges uh, Bataille uh, and then towards uh, this agenda perspective. Uh, and hopefully it, it will make sense. Uh, it's not easy. I, you, you need to uh, construct these things out of the thinking of Bataille. It's not necessarily there, everything. But if you uh, read uh, a lot of the time and also uh, other things, of course, then... Uh, <laughs> then uh, <laughs> we spoke about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah we spoke about this. If you read the Bataille with the text we also read before, oh. it starts to fester in the brain. Yeah. And a few feminists. And a few feminists. Like, <laughs> uh, I also uh, want to say that Abega uh, and I are actually working on an article right now uh, uh, about uh, eroticism and gender, and how uh, I think we think there's some potential in thinking the uh, constitution of gender, uh, gender, gender, <laughs> gender, yeah. gender identity. 
in thinking with eroticism. So, so it wasn't uh, just constructed for this uh, evening. We have thought about this. The article is not anywhere near done, but we it's have a disposition. Yeah. So, uh, at some point, we'll, we'll go there. Um, yeah, all right. So, uh, the, uh, what is general economy? How should we understand this in, uh, in what sense is this an economy at all? Well, when you think economy, normally you think about what Atari calls a limited economy, uh, production of goods, uh, exchange of money, and so on. But when Bataille is talking about economy, he's, been to uh, to he's talking about the flow of energy. He's talking about uh, uh, the circulation of energy on a uh, cosmic, uh, universal level, but also on uh, the very face of the globe. So, uh, so rather than circulation of energy, uh, it is rather the circulation of energy than production of goods, exchange of money, and so forth. He uses, uh, he uses an example of the, the sun, uh, the sun that is generous, that uh, produces a lot, an excess of energy, and we on Earth is uh, receiving the sun and, and through photosynthesis and, and warmth and so on, we are uh, consuming this uh, uh, energy, but only a part of it. That's an excess amount of energy uh, that, that we aren't consuming. Uh, So in the production of uh, ourselves, you might, by the way, notice that I have an almost uh, accent when I'm talking English. That's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's no problem to me. No, I mean, it's, uh... <laughs> but I, I, I become aware of it. <laughs> Normally, no. Because he's surrounded by people. All right. So. <laughs> Uh, so, in, in this uh, uh, energy that we receive, we only consume a small amount of it. The rest of it, uh, and this is uh, not only true of us, it's true of the plants and every kind of ecosystem uh, at all. So, what Bataille uh, is uh, pointing towards the, is that in the consumption and in the production that is tied to consuming, there's a, a vast amount of uh, squandering of excess energy that we need to, um, uh, that we need to waste uh, some sort, that we need to dispose of. Yeah. So, uh, and, and you don't take account of this uh, in what Bataille calls a limited uh, economy. Uh, for instance, a very, I think, understandable uh, picture of this is if you produce a wooden chair, then you have a piece of wood. This is actually Inger Christensen, the Danish poet's uh, example. In an essay she wrote, I, I wanted to uh, quote Inger Christensen, but uh, I, I only have the Danish uh, translation, so sorry about that. Uh, but uh, when you produce a wooden chair, for instance, then you cut the wood, and that's a lot, that's a vast amount of excess wood in the production of this uh, wood. We see this, uh, of course, uh, very clearly in the production of uh, uh, plastic, and we have this. Uh, huge amount of plastic islands in the oceans and so on. So I think that uh, at, at Bataille's uh, time, this, uh, this thinking about the excess in production uh, wasn't, uh, was, uh, as he called it, a Copernican, Copernicanian turn. But 
today, I think uh, a lot of thinkers are thinking more in line with the general economy and thinking about access and ways that we are talking uh, economy. So, but I think this is a great picture of what is left out of the cost-benefit equation of the production of a product, uh, 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 the excess, the waste that we need to dis dispose of. Uh, yeah. <coughs> Sorry. So on the face of the globe, as Bataille puts it, there's, uh, there's always energy in excess. Even in all countries, the excess energy, the sun, uh, is always uh, in excess. And we only consume a small amount. The rest we need to squander uh, or we need to excrete. Another fine example of this, our bodily economy works. We eat, we digest, uh, we excrete, and what we cannot uh, uh, we cannot use in our bodily system and so on. So this is uh, an example that would fit Bataille. Well, it's also describing it uh, like this in the Akashia. The living organism in a situation determined by the play of energy on the surface of the globe ordinarily receives more energy than is, uh, than in, is necessary for maintaining life. The excess energy wealth can be used for the growth of a system, for instance, uh, an organism. If the system, the system can uh, no longer grow, or if, it, uh, if the excess cannot be completely absorbed in its growth, it must necessarily be lost without profits, squandered. It must be spent, willingly or not, gloriously or catastrophically. Uh, one way to uh, dispose of the energy uh, for a tie is, of course, uh, uh, erotism, uh, but also it could also be war. I just remembered, I didn't put it in my notes, so I can't exactly remember the title, but he had a lot of working titles for this, uh, this book, uh, and one of them, I think, was The History of Eroticism uh, and Hiroshima, or something like that. I can't remember exactly, so this is... Uh, this is uh, it's the main thing I've got from it, like, it's that, those two things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and so this is tied together. And again, I would really have liked to uh, use Inga Christensen because uh, she's also having this uh, uh, look on nature and, and, uh, and growth in nature as, as something uh, that uh, is somehow monopolized or uh, made into uh, capitalized by humans and which uh, ends up in the, the neutron bomb and the hydrogen bomb and in, of course, the construction of uh, the the eye, the yai. Uh, you see this in, in the, uh, the poetry, the book, uh, uh, the book uh, it, uh, where you have this continuity, and from that it, it, it is broken up and ends up with in, in a you know, lonely eye, so to speak. Anyway, I don't have that with me. <laughs> so, okay. So from this very uh, broad notion of the of the general economy, uh, then I, I, I would like to move on towards the, uh, the, the production of ourselves, Because, uh, of course, for the time we are also engaged in, in this uh, circulation of energy, and thus we are also uh, engaged in this uh, uh, waste, of course. We eat, we consume, we transform, we excrete, we fuck, we party on, we smoke, 
We sweat, we give, we give birth under excruciating pain. Not me, I say, but maybe some of you will at, at one point. We waste a lot of energy. Uh, it's, it's a waste of energy, in a sense, right? It's not useful. Uh, so uh, what uh, Bataille is pointing towards is not what is the use of this excess. It is rather, is this excess acceptable? Or will it, uh, will it uh, uh, be subversive um, in respect to the, what he calls the homogenic order, uh, the constructed reality, uh, the, the reality of uh, usefulness, of purposes, and so on. Uh, so it is not, is, can this be made useful? It cannot. It must be lost without, uh, uh, without any use. Uh, but is this loss acceptable? It points towards a lot of different examples where, for instance, uh, the human sacrifice, uh, the gift, generosity. I think if there, if there should ever be an ethical aspect in Bataille's thinking, you would deny this. I, <laughs> but it, it is that, like Nietzsche, there's, uh, there's uh, sympathy for generosity. Uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, as I said, we are engaged in this uh, circulation of uh, consume, consumation of energy and also uh, the, uh, the waste and the excess and so on. Uh, of course, we work to uphold our lives, but we also want to squander it. And the best ways to squander it is, of course, in love, eroticism, violence, the festival, happiness, sometimes in a happy union, uh, sometimes in an unhappy union. Utterly useless, considered in a limited uh, economic framework. So, that's how he writes. The general movement uh, of uh, exudation, of waste, of living matter impels him, and he cannot stop it. Moreover, being at the summit, his sovereignty in the living world identifies him with this movement. It destines him in a privileged way to that glorious operation, to useless consumption. By the way, I need to, all the, all the thinkers in France at this time, saying him, his, and so on. Uh, cannot, uh, that's just the way that, sorry. <laughs> Are you all reading it like that? Yeah. <laughs> so, and, uh, and uh, another place in the share beyond our immediate ends, man's activity, in fact, pursues the useless fulfillment of the universe. So what we are really aiming at is the useless, is becoming useless in a sense, fulfillment of the universe. This, I might, and I need to add, is tied to a sovereign being. So if we're constrained by the homogenic order or by the bourgeois society and so on, uh, we wouldn't uh, necessarily be aware that we are actually pursuing the useless fulfillment of uh, the universe, but you are. We are. Yeah. I am. Anyway, so this implies, as, as you might read from the quotes, that uh, to fulfill uh, oneself as a soul in being, we must surpass ourselves. And this is the soul, uh, same transgressive, uh, transgressive movement that you find in, for instance, uh, Nietzsche's The uh, uh, Overman or the Suahun, 
uh, and as you would translate it to France. Uh, and and it, this is also the same transgressive aspect of the sewer and surrealism or over realism. Um, so, and it is a kind of squandering, a kind of excess. Um, or as Nietzsche would put it, I think in Beyond Good and Evil, to reach your ideal is to surpass it. Uh, so this, uh, I think, uh, this uh, perspective is something that ties, uh, ties uh, uh, drawing on Nietzsche here. All right, so uh, I've made a very uh, quick uh, uh, movement from the general theory of, uh, of economics and the ties towards this kind of squandering to yourself and surpassing of yourself. I hope it makes sense, I'm not done. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I think that one of his texts, um, namely uh, uh, Sola Einus, I don't know if you know it, I, it's a wonderful uh, short text uh, that uh, I think uh, is, uh, is capturing this movement of the universe intertwined with the human uh, condition. Uh, uh, so I'm gonna read a, a small part of that. Uh, to exemplify this movement from the cosmic level into uh, the production of uh, the human uh, uh, discontinuous uh, framework. So, it goes like this. If you can't hear what I'm saying, you can just read along there. Beings only die to be born in the manner of fallacies that leave bodies in order to enter them. Plants rise in the direction of the sun and then collapse in the direction of the ground. Trees bristle the ground with a vast quantity of flowered shaft raised up to the sun. The trees that forcefully soar end up burned by lightning, chopped down or uprooted, return to the ground, they come back up in another form. But the Pulemorphius coitus is a function of uniform terrestrial rotation. The simplest image of organic life uni uh, united with a rotation is the tide. From the movement of the sea, uniform coitus of the earth with the moon comes from the polymorphous and organic coitus of the earth with the sun. But the first form of solar love is a cloud raised up over the liquid element. The erotic cloud sometimes becomes a storm and falls back to earth in the form of rain, while lightning staves uh, in the layers of the atmosphere. The rain is soon raised up again in the form of an immobile plant. Animal life comes entirely from the movement of the sea, and inside bodies, life continues to come from salt water. The sea, then, has played the role of the female organ that liquefies under the excitation of the penis. The sea continuously jerks off. Solid elements contained and brewed in water, animated by erotic movement, shot out in the form of flying fish. The erection and the sun scandalize in the same way as the cavity or the darkness of cellars. Vegetation is uniformly directed towards the sun. Human beings, on the other hand, even though phalloid like trees, in opposition to other animals, necessarily uh, avert their eyes. The Solanos is a longer text, but I think this passage is, is quite uh, uh, brilliant. Yeah. All right, so we have this uh, big uh, cosmic movement in, in the Solanos, and we end up in this quotation, 
by the, uh, the, the, uh, that we necessarily avert our eyes. Uh, and from our certain towards uh, Batai's uh, eroticism. I, I must say that the Kashir is three is three volumes, and the other volume, uh, the second volume, is about uh, the history of eroticism. That that what Batai called it. So he, he ties it together with this notion of general economy, uh, and for a reason, of course. Uh, anyway, we avert our eyes. Uh, in uh, his book, Eroticism, that I can strongly recommend, he, he talks about uh, the human condition uh, as us being uh, discontinuous being longing for continuity. And what uh, does that mean? We're longing for some kind of lost intimacy, as he, say, he says. Uh, um, we are somehow embraced by a continuity that we do not possess. Uh, we open our eyes and we gaze at the world that we belong to, but we are also standing, uh, uh, we are also separated for, from it uh, at some point. But we could talk a lot about what constitutes individuality in this, uh, in this uh, movement, but uh, I'm not going to do that. It's going to be a bit technical, and uh, I'm not going to talk about Schopenhauer right now. So, uh, but, but we are uh, we're standing apart from the world that we are socially embracing. Uh, that is uh, the human condition, and we are longing to transgress this, uh, this uh, distance we have to the world and uh, to, uh, to engage in uh, intimacy with the world and each other. Uh, he calls this uh, uh, immanence relations in the, uh, uh, the inner experience. Uh, it's also called communication uh, and community. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, and we are longing towards these kind of communications where we meet. Communication is, is not that I'm communicating some kind of uh, uh, information to you, but it's rather that we commune, that we melt together, in a sense, that uh, the, subject and, uh, the subject and the object is, in a sense, uh, becoming uh, one and the same thing uh, when you're uh, talking about, when you're reading the inner experience. So, this is the basic human condition. Uh, we are apart from this world, and we need to. We want to transgress uh, this distance to become uh, to experience intimacy. Yeah. All right. Um, am I talking too long? I have no clue. All right. I'm not, okay. I don't have a watch. It depends where you want to finish. <laughs> yeah. I know. I need to. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Have so like five minutes. <laughs> Alright, uh, so we are so longing for these intimate relations, uh, communication and community in Batai's uh, uh, eroticism, uh, so to speak. And this is also tied to, you know, the Sorin Dean that we quoted earlier, who wants to uh, engage in useless uh, consumption and the useless fulfillment of the universe, so to speak. So, uh, this is uh, tied together. Um, but, and another example of this is also found in the Solar Angels, where he writes, um, in bed, uh, this community or, and, and this uh, tragic relationship, in a sense, is exemplified by this example, I think. In bed, next to a girl he loves, he forgets that he does not know why he is himself instead of the body he touches. Without knowing it, he suffers from the mental darkness 
that keeps him from screaming that he himself is the girl who forgets his presence while shuddering in his arms. So there's some kind of mental darkness. Uh, this mental darkness, I think, is, is, is our own discontinuity, that we are apart from each other and we forget that we are actually uh, one. But the erotic embrace, uh, it becomes possible for, uh, for that time. So, uh, because this is uh, our circumstance, uh, uh, <coughs> then uh, we uh, feel separated for life, as the last uh, quotation is uh, making clear. Love and life appear to be separate only because everything on earth is broken apart by vibrations of various amplitudes and durations. So we are broken apart from the world, we are longing for intimacy, communication, eroticism, and this can uh, you know, uh, be completed in the uh, soul and being, or ecstasy, or violence, or eroticism, uh, happiness, uh, laughter, uh, and so on in Patai's writing. So, and now I, I want to make a touch. What have uh, what it, what is this to do with uh, gender? I need to really <laughs> transition towards that. <laughs> okay, so to engage with the world, we need uh, to overcome the distance uh, to the world, and to do that, we need to have some kind of passageway. Uh, the surrealists are looking for the same, they call it the marvels and so on, but, but I was not a surrealist, uh, uh, but it's, it's pretty close. Uh, anyway, so we need some kind of opening, um, and the one coveted, uh, the one, the object, the object of our desire is such an opening. Uh, but in this movement, uh, this orientation towards uh, uh, the desired, desired or coveted, uh, we fixate the other in our desire's garment. Uh, so uh, we need to make some kind of uh, representation of the one we desire. And to orient ourselves towards the erotic object, then we uh, fixate this uh, desirable uh, person in attributes and attitudes and so on. So in a sense we produce an image uh, of the other as desirable and thereby we're also producing ourselves uh, our own desire. Uh, we derive our own desire and the character of that desire from this relationship. Without it, the desire would be nothing. So there's some kind of dialectical the dialectical relationship between the desiring and the desire. Yeah. Uh, and this works as a kind of mirroring, and, and this is, I think, uh, well expressed in the next uh, quotation here. We can keep this much in mind, that in the embrace, the object of desire is always the totality of being. Again, the sovereign uh, uselessness uh, fulfillment of the universe, right? In a word, the object of desire is the universe in the form of she, when the embrace is its mirror, where we ourselves are reflected. So this expresses the, the complex uh, dialective movement between the, the desired and, uh, uh, and the desired objects, uh, the desiring, so to speak. Uh, and it's a, it's, it's a world, there's no uh, fixed point uh, anywhere in, in this relationship, in Bataille. So, so if we, I, 
uh, identified with these uh, images, the covered image, uh, which is a mirror, then we constitute our own identity from this. We derive our identities from this complex dialectical movement. Makes sense, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Which entails, of course, gender identity. In what sense is that the case? Rebecca will explain. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Dumping it on me. <laughs> So, this entire process, of course, this whole thing's been a surprise, it's not really. No, but this entire process is, of course, also affected by the rest of the world, by the discourses, by power relationships, and so on. So, gender identities is both, in this perspective, something we perform, of course, like Judith Butler would say, uh, it's also something, something we project uh, on the coveted. It's by dressing uh, the coverture in the garments of our desire. Um, it is also a reflection of this projection, projection upon ourself, the kind of mirroring that is uh, taking place. And, of course, um, uh, it's also shaped by, by how these projections, uh, projections for which we self are canvases, uh, be it are we canvases for projections of our lovers or society, ideology, religion, uh, and all sorts of discourses. Uh, so, all from which our uh, identity derives its character. So, obviously this can go horribly wrong, uh, since uh, it, it is the production of identity. And since, in this production of identity, if we solely identify uh, with the constituted image, the fixed identity, the excess aspect of who we are is left out. And this is why it becomes relevant uh, in, in the material economy, that we leave out, in this product, production of our own gender identity, we leave out uh, what cannot be uh, transformed, so to speak, or the heterogeneous aspect to uh, use Patai's framework, or, but, or simply uh, that which, which might uh, not feel content is in this gender, gender identity. Uh, what we forget if we uh, identify totally with some kind of constructive identity, that we, if we actually think that we are our identity, I think this, we need to surpass that aspect to realize we need to go from, in Bataille's view, from uh, the idea that we should realize ourselves and become an identity. In becoming the ideal, you need to surpass it, as Nietzsche would say, and as Patai would say, and I think that's... Because what we are forgetting is that uh, our real aim is what Patai calls the totality of being. We, we forget that what we seek to embrace is precisely the totality of being. Uh, uh, and this, that we forget this, is what Patai called the mental darkness that we spoke, uh, spoke of, that keeps us from screaming that we are the loved one. Uh, who forgets our presence while shuddering shutter, in our arms. In the production of identity, we, we forget that this image of the other and of ourselves is but a threshold, a wound, an opening. We forget that we cast shadows uh, and that we can engage uh, each other and meet each other in these shadows uh, in erotic play, for instance. So, the fixed identity, in other words, would be what we call the nude. 
instead of being nude, we should be naked. Uh, or as Bataille would uh, say, nakedness is a state of communication revealing a quest for a possible continuance of being beyond the confines of the soul. And that concludes what I would say now. Yes. <laughs> right. Jon was rather strategic when he chose to drink white wine rather than red wine, which means that my teeth are currently purple tainted, oh. uh, which may reduce my authority. Anyways, um, yeah, so following up on what Jon was saying, I'll just very briefly say that, um, of course, uh, following this whole notion of a very limited understanding of the economy, um, one of the large issues that feminism has been dealing with is one of the uh, these reductionist understandings of what a person can be or what the ideal person is, limit or or not even the ideal person, the ideal producer of knowledge, the ideal body, and so on. And uh, liberalism, neoliberalism, neoliberal, rationalism, positivism, and late capitalism, and capitalism in general, um, has given birth to this, um, what I would call, uh, an understanding of, or a kind of agency understanding where the person is supposed to transform their identity positions or cultural, cultural social positions into identity positions that can be assets they can manage as if they were something that could be at risk for their market value. So, your gender, your race, your sexuality, uh, whatever it may be, your class, uh, should be something that you can manage um, as, as assets, in a way. Um, and evaluate ongoingly uh, what to forefront and what to downplay in a particular situation in order to increase your market value. That's kind of a, a within that given homogenous uh, and very limited econo economic understanding, that would be how we would how we would look upon these, these questions. Of course, one of the, you know, this is based on a number of assumptions, but two of these assumptions um, are, firstly, all have equal access to converting their identity traits into something that is valuable within the existing orders. That's the first assumption. The second assumption is that the individual is some sort of borderless person that can continually grow and just trend and just transcend whatever cultural, social cultural position they they are placed in. And of course, I'm not saying that it's not possible to reject this. I'm just saying that this is, you know, it, it is it it means that people are generally differently positioned in terms of converting these so-called assets into values within the this so-called market. So, when capitalism, patriarchy, uh, white, uh, whiteness, uh, middle-class ideologies settle the norms uh, and become the basis of which value is defined uh, and evaluated, there is uh, a so-called movement of bodies. 
And this movement of bodies, it's been described in the work of Foucault, uh, Goffman, all kinds of other sociologists and philosophers throughout time, to describe how people, through a number of ideological codes, discursive images, and technologies of the self, um, evaluate themselves and each other according to a number of, of codes and so on. You have, uh, and we see it everywhere all the time, and I'm speaking now also within the more overall topic of uh, Copenhagen's Literature Festival, and also the question of alternative ideas of growth, that uh, what is the ideal body? What is the ideal worker? What is the ideal partner, the ideal child, the ideal husband, the ideal wife, the ideal... All of these, all of these uh, ideals, and also the ideal author and the ideal academic, because what I'm going to return to uh, in a very short while is some of the authors that were... You had... There were some readings from these earlier on, uh, both from the vegetarian, uh, the Belgian, and uh, Great Expectations. And um, and the thing is that, per definition, these ideals, being products of, of ideologies, are um, impossible to achieve. But some come closer to these ideals than other people do. And this happens through a complex of, 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 of everyday practices and so on. But what... These, what these three examples of books that I'll just speak briefly, and I'm not a literary scholar, I'm a gender scholar, I'm an education scholar, so what I've done is that I've been reading these books and trying to make sense of them from this growth perspective. So I have a manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try to keep eye contact every now and then, but if I, if I, if I kind of dive into my manuscript every now and then, don't, don't, don't take it personally. Um, so, uh, literature. <laughs> Please do. Uh, so, uh, literature, as um, you also have written on your poster for the uh, the events of today, has this ability to um, show a way in which we can break free from these homogenous orders, these ideological codes the norms by which we evaluate each other and ourselves and evaluate whether we are growing as beings, as individuals, whether our economy is progressing, whether our society is moving forward in the right way or the wrong way, all of these measures by which we evaluate both on a micro and macro scale, um, these can be surpassed somehow. And I, I think that these three books are excellent examples, both in terms of content and form, uh, the way of writing, the very language that is produced, is uh, examples of how we can uh, not necessarily show a definite endpoint or definite alternative, but definitely point towards an alternative um, uh, path, if that makes sense. Uh, which I think also is very much uh, in line with the type, and that this is, you know, you can somehow uh, sh move towards this, ex you can show the excess, but that doesn't mean you have uh, clearly uh, captured this excess in some box and defined it as an identity. No, can, exactly. I, can I comment? Yes, please. Yeah. Because Bataille is actually calling literature communication. Yeah. So this is a literature, he also thinks, is a threshold uh, towards something uh, that you can uh, 
come in contact with, an intimate, intimate experience with uh, ideas and beings and so on. So, yeah, yeah totally. Exactly. So, yeah, we put this picture in here, but I can't remember why. So, uh, <laughs> why <do> we... <laughs> so um, just, I'll just take, uh, I'll start with uh, the Han Kang, the vegetarian, uh, and try to say a few words about that. First, I think it's really important to place her work and her ideas in a particular context. She apparently, according to uh, the internet, which is of course the authority. Don't, don't get it. It's good enough for Trump. It's good enough for us all now. That's the new standard. I've heard about it online. <laughs> exactly. False news. Uh, anyways, she was obsessed during her years as a young student, she was obsessed with a Korean avant-garde uh, poet called Yi San, who uh, wrote, and this was during uh, the colonial era of Korea, he wrote, I believe all humans should be plants. And um, I think this is it's an interesting kind of point of departure for reading The Vegetarian um, from a feminist, uh, anti-colonialist, and many other positions that you could take on board. Um, the leading character in the book, I can't pronounce Young Hay. Young Hay, yeah, yeah, okay, so you know how it's pronounced. Young <laughs> Hay, uh, whom we encountered through uh, both reductionist and objectifying, um, and I would say somewhat dehumanizing eyes of her father, her husband, to some extent also her brother-in-law and her sister. And I'm saying to some extent, and I'll return to that afterwards, why that is a bit more complex than the two, the two other figures. Um, it starts off by her refusing to eat meat, uh, and you were already presented uh, with that early on, with Macon's introduction, and also um, from some of the readings of the other Rebecca in the room. That is, was Rebecca? That was yes, it was. Yes, yes, right. Um, because, and her explanation for this is that it, it was a dream or a nightmare that caused her to uh, not want to eat meat anymore. And this is an explanation that no one will accept. It is not acceptable within this rational framework that we have uh, placed ourselves in. And I'm just going to read, uh, or reread, because the other Rebecca also wrote a part, uh, this particular quote as well, which was just a coincidence. So, uh, but I'll read it again, because I think it, it, it fits very well. Dark woods, no people. The sharp pointed leaves on the trees, my torn feet. This place almost remembered, but I'm lost now, frightened, cold, across the frozen ravine, a red barn-like building, straw matting flapping limp across the door, roll it up and I'm inside, it's inside. A long bamboo stick strung, whoops, with Great blood-red gashes of meat, blood still dripping down. Try to push past the meat. There's no end to the meat, and no exit. Blood in my mouth, blood-soaked clothes suck onto my skin. 
So this is the dream from which um, she decides not to eat meat anymore. Um, but it's just the beginning. This is only the beginning of the book. She starts rejecting to eat meat. She encounters a lot of problems as, re uh, as a result of that. But uh, she slowly rejects all forms of bodily desire. She does not sleep. She hardly eats if she eats at all. She has no sexual desire, at least of the conventional kind. I will return to that later on. She does not seek to beautify herself. She does not seek acceptance. And by the end, she claims not to need water, but only sunshine to survive. She is developing into a tree. With time, she claims that dreams, words, and thoughts will no longer be necessary. And a number of things is kind of happening here. I'm trying to just cut, kind of put it in some sort of make sense of it to myself. Maybe it will make sense for you as well. Um, she is, one, she's letting go of her bodily needs and her ego. And through that, she exposes and inherently critiques the violence of society, culture, economy, and human beings. And now I'm, I'm saying this with, I'll give you a few quotes afterwards, but you've already had a large of fragments of quotes, so I'm not going to go through a whole lot of that. She is responding, and this is, so what I was saying first is that she's exposing and critiquing society, culture, economy, and um, the violence of society, culture, economy, and, and of human beings. This is on a kind of a macro level. And then she's also responding to the trauma of her own father's violence, the violence of her husband, the violence of her brother-in-law. The male violence towards her body becomes a symbol of the colonialization and the rejection of her as having value. Becoming a plant is a rejection of violence. And it is a rejection because a plant can never be implicated in the brutality of hierarchical dynamics. And there I have another quote. Oh, there's a picture here from Andre Masson. First trees, and you can't see where they stop and where they end. It's, it's as if the, both the sky and the earth, uh, it's all melting into one. So, this is um, in terms of this topic of violence. I think this quote summarizes that very well. Dreams of murder. Murderer of murdered. Hazy distinctions, boundaries, wearing thin. Familiarity bleeds into strangeness, certainty becomes impossible. Only the violence is vivid enough to stick is to stick a sound uh, to stick there's a full stop missing there. A sound the elasticity of the instant when the metal struck the victim's head. The shadow that crum that crumbled and fell gleams cold in the darkness. They come to me now more times than I can count. Dreams overlaid with dreams. Can you say that word? Oh, palimpsest. Yeah. Palimpsest of horror. Violent acts perpetrated by night. A hazy feeling I can't pin down, but remembered as blood-chillingly definite. Intolerable loathing, so long suppressed, 
loathing I've always tried to mask with affection, but now the mask is coming off. So more than becoming a plant is a critique of human violence, and this relates again to the quote I gave in the very beginning by uh, this avant-garde uh, poet uh, that humans should become plants, which was a comment on the colonialization of Korea at the time. Um, she is also, in becoming this tree, critiquing um, metaphysics or particular scientific positions that would deny plants to have life or intelligence. Uh, she is rejecting uh, positivist science, and she is replacing that with soulfulness. Um, and uh, I picked up this quote, or I kind of rephrased it a little bit, but something like that, uh, by a philosopher called Michael Marder, who wrote The Philosophy of Plants. And he writes, The truth of the soul is exposed as something mortal, embodied, and this worldly. And I think that's what happens in her refusing to be a human and wishing to become a plant. Because she's constantly asked, in being a human, she's asked to be something she cannot be. Um, and I'm going to return more to these uh, disjunctures between uh, the demands of identity and uh, the wish to become a uh, a sense yourself or to come closer to the excess of yourself which cannot be framed in that. She, as a tree, becomes useless in the eyes of society and of her surroundings. I mean, look at her husband, the way he speaks of her and about her, the way her father actually uh, physically violates her by um, uh, giving her fist in her head because she doesn't, she refuses to eat meat how there are all these kinds of situations where she, she is so bodily violated um, because of her uselessness. She's no longer living up to the particular ideals she should be, or ought, be, ought to be as a wife who should be cooking meat for her husband, or as a, a child who should just be beating her parents or whatever. Um, but one interesting departure from all of these people who find her useless is then her brother-in-law. Because um, he develops a sexual fetish for flower-painted bodies. And um, also at the end, very end of the novel, her sister um, tries to understand her need to escape her human presence in the world because she connects that to the violence that um, she was uh, she was experiencing as a child. Um, but this is kind of a different thing. But in terms of this sexual fetish, what's interesting about it is that whereas uh, she has not, uh, she has actually put aside all sexual desire, she then starts being able to experience sexual desire in this particular context where her brother-in-law paints her body with flowers. So um, it becomes a kind of a potent disorientation in a way. It's kind of really, uh, it's kind of a weird experience where this potent disorientation of her sense of self has a sexual dimension. And this, this 
both comes into, uh, you know, it's both expressed in the whole chapter related to the relationship between her and her brother-in-law, which has many features of violence and lots of problematic things as well. But I think that's an interesting aspect as well. And I'll, I'll just return to that briefly in a wee bit. But um, what then happens is that she realizes that she can maintain herself as a tree by being in a handstand position. Okay, this is... I'm, I'm jumping a little bit, but it'll all make sense hopefully in the end. <laughs> I thought trees stood up straight. I only found out just now. I act, they actually stand with both arms in the earth, all of them. Look, look over there. Aren't you surprised? All of them. They're all standing on their heads. Young Hugh laughed frantically. In Hugh remembered moments from their childhood when young Hugh's face had worn the same expression as it did now. Those moments when her sister's single-lidded eyes would narrow and turn completely dark, when that innocent laughter would come rushing out of her mouth. Do you know how I found out? I was in, it was in a dream, and I, I don't know what I did there to that quote, and I was standing on my head. Leaves were growing from my body, and roots were sprouting from my hands, so I dug down into earth, on and on, I wanted flowers to bloom from my crutch, so I spread my legs, I spread them wide. wide. Bewildered, Hugh looked across young Hugh's feverish eyes. I need to water my body. I don't need, and she's referring to, now I put this in brackets because she's referring now to some food that the sister brought for. I don't need food, I need water. So here yeah, she's sitting. So, um, turning in herself into this plant, both paint, being painted as a plant and standing in a headstand as something that can grow and put her, you know, let roots grow and so on, she becomes sexually liberated. She speaks freely and without any attempt to hold back her sexual deviation. And what is then interesting here is, well, I think that at least, at the heart of this ontology of plants, you could say, uh, is that they do not take any kind of oppositional stance um, towards their surroundings, and they cannot be reduced to any dualism. Um, for instance, gender, productivity, reproductivity, uh, these kind of dualisms that are inherent in those kinds of distinctions. Vegetal life surpasses dualisms and oppositions and produces difference without seeking sameness. It is multiple gendered. And I think that this connects them back to what you were saying about the time, in a way that to reach your ideal is to surpass it. And I think that that is very much what she's doing around the tree here. I, I don't know. If you re re read or reread the book, you may be able to read it in the same way as I do. But that's, that's the way I see it. Shall I move on to the other books, or how much time do I have? Um, if, if, if you'd like to, it depends if you, you know, if you if you think this is a good place to stay, then that's also fine. Um, um, you, we, have, we have time. We have we just we have to be up by ten, so it's okay. We have time because I have I, I have. Um, I mean, it's also I think it's also important that you guys aren't too bored, so it's you, know, you just indicate if you want me to stop. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, by yawning. 
I think this is one way in which uh, this book kind of expresses this ability to surpass the homogeneous order by becoming a tree is both rejecting the existing and surpassing in a way. The bell jar, um, you had a reading, um, once again, I didn't know which readings were being presented, so I haven't necessarily um, produced my manuscript here in connection to those, but nonetheless I think it might still be useful. And also, um, the bell jar by Sylvia Plath, I mean, placed in context, I think, you know, it was uh, first published in 1963 in London, uh, and I think uh, what uh, is very interesting about this book is that it actually had a really important um, standing in the feminist consciousness mo raising movement. It was part of the whole movement uh, and women's liberation movement where women were getting together to try to find a vocabulary, vocabulary, uh, a set of words to describe their experiences as women living in a world dominated or structured in patriarchy and structured in capitalism. For instance, a word such as rape grew out of that movement. There was not a word for that before women's consciousness raising movement, because before that, and so when you see it in history books, it's something that is actually, it's a new construction that is used to describe something that happened in the past, but it's actually a very recent word. And I think that that's just a really interesting uh, example of what happened at this time and how this book was so central for, for that. Um, and I think that what uh, Sylvia Plath uh, does is that she is then trying to... Uh, she, well, this was before the consciousness raising movement, but she's taking up some of the same topics that people later on, the feminists later on would take up. These are topics such as madness, powerlessness, and betrayal, and victimization, different kinds. Uh, it moves, the book, Belgia, moves between and seeks to heal uh, at this juncture between uh, the ideological homogenous representation of the self and that which is not represented in that order. Um, she is in the vocabulary of the time, seeking to heal the disjuncture between the homogenous ideological production of self and the heterogeneous leftover or excess of self that which cannot be captured in the ideological production. Uh, and in that way she also, uh, you can also usefully express that through John Berger's distinction as, as, uh, as Jung was also speaking about the distinction between the nude and the naked. The nude and the European oil painting history as being a production of the woman for the male gaze. Whereas the naked woman is not, she is more than that. You know, she is not necessarily and only an objectified being produced for the male gaze. She has other things going on there that cannot be captured in that very limited description. Um, and it is also, I think, in Sylvia Plath, a movement of coming to terms 
not only accepting, but even expressing one's body. And um, I think it actually, Sylvia Plath in that way, speaks directly into contemporary feminist debates about reclaiming your body. Uh, I think it's very, very contemporary and uh, relevant in that sense. But Esther, uh, main character of the book, uh, her rebirth is a self-birth, in a way. Um, she is attempting to enter the world, and um, she's doing that through a, a number of things are happening here as well. In the first hand, I would say that you have uh, Sylvia Plath does what you would call feminine writing. And feminine writing is not to be understood in this kind of essentializing way where women write in a particular way that men don't. This is, this is not about it. It's about an expression of what uh, some French uh, feminists such as uh, Iri Garay or Sisu or uh, American uh, Bill Hooks um, describes as an expression of eros or eros which is where uh, women, or anyone for that matter, in the face of power structures of uh, sexism, patriarchy, capitalism, or any other form of, uh, of power structure, uh, uh, engages in disruptive and subversive writing by bringing in bodily rhythms and sexual pleasure and the objectified. Uh, does everyone know what the objectified is? Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll hurry up and um, and stop. Um, so this is then in opposition to uh, remaining uh, in disembodied forms of abstraction or, or the conventional forms of writing. And this form of writing or feminine writing is a way in which she, uh, she Esther or the, es the character of Esther can overcome the alienation of herself. It's not Esther who's writing, but she's the one telling the story. Also, Sylvia Plath moves from uh, the feminine to a feminist discourse, which of course relates to the feminine writing, but it is a little bit different, because uh, she does um, something in that she critiques what she calls a well, she doesn't call it that, I'll call it that. She critiques a kind of a masculine and phallic uh, language and the techniques uh, that are connected to that. And one of those uh, techniques were mentioned in the reading earlier was that of shock treatment. Uh, the shock treatment is not, uh, is, 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 she positions that as masculine. And I'm going to explain, explain why she does that. Uh, because it's 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 a little bit more complicated than just essentializing it as being masculine, um, and she escapes from this to what she called what one can say a kind of bot bot botany, uh, which becomes an expression of breathing life and fascination, fullness and richness. The masculine language of abbreviation and formulas becomes a metaphor for her to speak of her abbreviated, fragmented self, sense of self as a woman in a patriarchal society. So it's not, uh, so that's why she names it masculine or it can be positioned as masculine. Um, where in which she's kind of uh, reduced to uh, satisfying everyone but herself. Um, and she turns also then 
this is the third step, she turns her labeled insanity into the same because she exposes the violence of the norms that categorize her as insane. And there are lots of these kind of examples in the book, and I have, I had a piece of about four pages I wanted to read, but I don't have time for that, so I'll just not bother. But this is a particular example of that is that one of the, uh, uh, one of the nurses comes in, she's in an, in a, in a psychiatric hospital, and one of the nurses comes in and asks her, how are you doing? And she's thinking to herself, I know I'm supposed to answer that I'm okay. Because if I answer, I don't, I'm not feeling okay, hell will break loose. And so she's observing what's happening in the room as the nurse is passing around and asking everyone how they're doing, and everyone is just saying, yeah, I'm fine. And she's just thinking, I want to trash something, I want to ruin the mirror, I want to, you know, and all these kinds of things. So, do I have any more time? Because I even have a, <laughs> I even have a, something on Kathy Hacker. Ah, a little bit of Kathy Acker, and then we'd be, yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you bored yeah. to death? No. <laughs> this, this, is, this is people intensely listening. Unfortunately, like, okay. the comedians have an easier I, I job. I just become embarrassed and self-aware. <laughs> can, can I have, have some wine? <laughs> yeah. That would be us, yes. Yeah. And Sam, can I have a beer? Yes. <laughs> and Rebecca, do you want to leave? I'm, I'm okay for now. Okay. I, might, I might want to have a beer or two. <laughs> Certainly. Um, um, so... Uh, yeah, uh, so I think that what's interesting about Sylvia Plath is that she's really um, trying to establish a new kind of gender relation and pointing towards that possibility because actually in the end of the book um, a male doctor becomes very important for her healing process. So she's not claiming that this other gender, and now we're staying within the categories of identity, and I know that's problematic, but I still think it's important because this is written within a particular context in a particular time, and I, I think it has a certain relevance, um, that she's claiming that, that there is something that can happen by becoming aware of how these abbreviations and these formulas and so on are reducing me to a state of identity or state of being where I do not wish to be or that cannot express my sense of self or my, my, sorry, Anna, who's got, uh, sort of, who's man, but, um, so, yeah, I think by the end of the novel she's really allowing for something new to happen there because she's not just saying, uh, saying we can't use men for anything or Stuff like that. This is not the point of the book. The point is more to reach beyond that, to find a new way in which these relations can be established mm. in a positive way, without necessarily providing some sort of uh, formula for that. Great Expectations by Kathy Acker is a very different uh, kind of context, of course, and uh, it's from 1982. And um, I don't have any more quotes, so I'm that. Uh, Acker. <laughs> Acker, openly and without any sense of shame, plagiarizes the title of a very canonized novel by Charles Dickens, um, Great Expectations. And this is a book about personal growth and develop personal growth and development of this orphan named Pip, uh, and how he encounters and reflects upon these questions of wealth and poverty, love and rejection, 
um, good and evil. And using this uh, particular title can be seen as a kind of a parody um, on Acker's own expectations for the possibilities of art and sexuality, because I think those are very much the topics she's dealing with in her book. Um, Acker creates a collage around the topics of sex, love, art, creativity, social unrest, feminism, and porn. Um, she is a counter-cultural punk author who, both in form and content, presents a critique of the established and she attacks all forms of social regulation, be it capitalism, patriarchy, heteronormativity, any kind of anti-porn uh, establishment, whatever. And these, uh, the literary expression and the form she has, it takes this, as I said, shape, shape of collages and plagiarized pieces. And this is in itself what I see as a, as a kind of a, a rejection of conventional writing practices of dominant notions of good and productive authorship and forms of authority established in literary uh, circles and art. She is writing the body, a queer and feminist critique and alternative to the rules of modernity and also the masculine conventions. Um, she critiques how some people and some forms of arts are, are ascribed values, whereas others are not, value, whereas others are not. And those artists who should be critiquing the system is, are prostituting themselves for survival and thereby becoming slaves of the economy. And I mean, so in a way she's showing how there is this circle going on and she's kind of pinpointing how we are trying to escape the identities but we continually end, end up back in those same point of, like, points we're trying to escape from. She pinpoints the problems of heterosexual feminist critiques, at least, and this is important once again, this is why it's important to place it in the context both of the 80s but also of America, which is very different from the feminist debates of Europe, of course, and particularly also of Northern, Northern Europe. But nonetheless, it's, it revolves, she says, the, heteros the problems of heterosexual feminist critiques is that they involve a rejection of one's own sexuality. And this is where I think um, uh, uh, Kathy Acker connects really well to works of uh, people such as uh, Gail Rubin, um, who wrote The History of Sexual Deviation or um, uh, The Political Economy of Sexuality. And I think there are some interesting kind of connections. Also, she did a book on uh, loosely inspired of the, the relationship uh, between Church Bataille and Colette Pignot. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think that's... I just poured wine over your course, course. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah, she did. And, I mean, she's very much uh, connected to that. And I think that she allows for something to emerge beyond this critique. Uh, because she mobilizes perversion, the amoral, and dissident sexuality as a path towards alternative. And once again, she's not seeking to normalize these positions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, once again, very important in connection to the tie. There is no uh, intent of seeking to normalize it, but rather uh, seeking to give 
the rejected space so that it may be a real alternative to the alternative borders mm. rather than just being adapted into them. And I think that's one of the important things if you want to escape uh, capitalist forms of growth yeah. is that we also need to uh, kind of, in a way, not only accept but actually see that capitalism and neoliberalism for that matter has this amazing ability to incorporate all mm. forms of critiques and make it part of itself. So if you read, you know, we see it all the time, and we see how they they co-opt it and shape it into something that is defanged. And this is what happens as well when you're trying to remove something from being um, uh, a taboo or uh, or whatever into something else. And now I'm done. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, Rebecca, that was wonderful. Um, I've made like pages of notes, so I'm now going to just quickly go through. I'm going to do like, um, I think we're going to try and like see if there's any questions now rather than try and get one back again because it's, it's going to, you know, dwindle away. But I'm going to maybe just um, start things off. The, the, the thing which I really thought was uh, interesting, which I think links the two um, together, is this notion of, of useless as according to what. That's the. Um, that's the, the main thing that I thought was uh, interesting. And then the ability to refuse to be useful, the capacity to do to do that, to um, that is that is the luxury position of, of the of the uh, the privileged position of our our, our current um, well our long lasting capitalism. <laughs> um, I was wondering if there's if there's anything you'd like to speak to in, in, in that idea. I think it was the it's always about this external limit or this this uh, this uh, teleological line, which is the um, seems to be the, the the point here. And I'm wondering if you want to expand more on that. Yeah, either of you, if you feel, or maybe that's just I'm just saying a thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the okay, the uselessness. Um, well, uh, it's not a question now. I'm very sorry. I'm really, um, <laughs> I think what what strikes me as really interesting is that what this work is, what I think has come out from this um, evening, is that it's the end point that is the problem. It is the fact that we are head, you head towards a certain and unchangeable, almost arbitrary um, ethical condition, or like, or, or, or well, an ethics of I'm going to accumulate capital regardless yeah. of I'm going to. Um, I'm going, I'm, going to, I'm going to have a useful identity. I'm going to, um, and as you were saying before, with, um, with, with, with the uh, listen to Katiaka, uh, the, the way that she is, um, she is not seeking to normalize her position, her, her point of view. That 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 does, does that still have relevance today, even outside of the context in which it was uh, originally? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in, in many senses, mm. I think that, uh, and I think it's a, in, in Denmark today. It's uh, it's it's when the new government uh, uh, formed, they said, "Well, we are we are uh, a, a collective of." Uh, they didn't use that. Arbeidsfellowship would be the Danish uh, Workers uh, Society collective. Mm. Uh, they wouldn't use collective. No, they no. <laughs> <laughs> But we, but we are, and, and, yeah. So you need to have a, you need to have a, 
Yeah, yeah community or something yeah. like that. But, um, cooperation. Cooperation, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would probably be a, a, a better translation of it. Uh, and, and certainly uh, this idea that you, you have it, actually Nietzsche pointed this out back in the uh, 1880s or something like that, that, that uh, this invention of the dignity of working mm. was a way to uh, instill some kind of new slave morality. And, and this is certainly a, a point that uh, Bataille is also drawing upon. And when he says, what is work? It is instilling a purpose, giving uh, human a useful purpose. But this way of being useful, useful for what exactly? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, as he says uh, in the quote, uh, the, the, the main purpose for man is actually to become useful, uh, useless and uh, uh, and to uh, to have these moments of leisure, intimacy, and uh, love and happiness. I think the same goes for, for instance, a writer like Camus, who is pointing towards that, and therefore also criticizing the notion of a rational history or the progress of history. And thus, uh, from a socialist position, both Camus and Bataille is criticizing uh, uh, Marxism, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Uh, not Marxism as a tool for analysis of a capitalist order. I think that's still... Mm works, mm. but uh, as this accumulation, uh, or this uh, this um, progress yeah. towards yeah. Uh, an end goal, uh, they would definitely uh, uh, criticize, they did criticize it, and they would also reject that that should be uh, a, a valuable uh, position at all, mm. because it instills the end goal some, somewhere out in the future. Mm. So, and I think that is, 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 is really relevant uh, to uh, today when we are have a cooperation uh, of workers where, uh, where you, you are not dignified if you, if you do not work. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're sick, uh, you need to become uh, healthy again so you can uh, become a worker and regain your dignity and mm-hmm. so on. Uh, and again, I would, would have liked to have Ingrid Christensen uh, with me today. Well, we're because, gonna soon, yeah, yeah. yeah, but but she wrote an essay called Work, mm. where she makes exactly these points mm. in I think in 1982 or something like that. So, mm. and 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 actually, so we and that's again, yeah. uh, I think, relevant towards the we to to produce yourself or to bru- produce certain identities and mm. think that you should become these identities, mm. uh, yeah. even if they are. Uh, so if, even if they are not in opposition to the uh, the homogenic order, to think that this is what you need to do is problematic, mm. and I, I therefore think this is, is very relevant uh, in in most identity mm. politics because yeah. this is not clear yeah. at all, yeah. uh, and what it entails isn't clear at all. I'd, I'd like to admit that as well. Mm. So I think that uh, one, and I would also. Rasmus has a question, but I'll just, uh, if I can just briefly um, say to that, that I think uh, one of the big issues that we've encountered of, uh, and we see it, we see now the results of that, is uh, what happens when you normalize um, a very radical position. Mm. So when you normalize or defang, so defang feminism, mm. it's what happens. You are converting extremely radical questions, not only of uh, your position within the social relations, but also the inherent critique there is in that of colonialization, 
capitalism and all these other mm. extremely um, uh, problematic, <laughs> to put it mildly, processes, you are removing, you're removing the critique mm. from that which it, mm. which it has to be, you know, the mm. critique has to be embedded in a larger yeah. process, yeah. in a larger critique. Yeah. And you're removing it from that. Uh, and, there, and thereby you're making it a non-critique. Yeah. Because you're reducing questions, for instance, of gender, sexuality, mm. race, and so on, to mm. numbers. Mm. Oh, we have 50% women and 50% men. Oh, then we don't have a problem anymore. Mm. Oh, I have, we have so-and-so many uh, people who don't speak Danish mm. in our workplace, so here we're definitely not racist. Mm. Or, you know, and you're reducing it to these kinds of things, mm. these kind of things, and that's what happens when you normalize this. And I, and I think that, you know, there is, uh, and I'm not saying that, you sh that mm. there isn't a value in, mm. in making yeah. the critique relevant broadly, but I'm just saying that it's important to maintain a critique that is not necessarily just... Uh, co-opted yeah. within a larger capitalist yeah. kind of framework. When it becomes the, the, you know, the way for Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook to sell books, for example. Exactly. Yeah. Sheryl Sandberg is my favourite example to hate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have um, failed to pose questions to you guys while trying to think of interesting things to say all night, so I'm going to open up to the audience and say, uh, Rasmus, you had a question? Yeah, I have a question, um, which is actually part of what you just said here. Yeah. Mm. Um, seems to me that we had like a century or so of uh, capitalism trying to harness the subversive potential of growth in like self-help literature, in like uh, this, this, this new new idea of productivity, uh, where you like workers are internalizing the idea of I have to be somewhat productive or to justify my existence in the world, and lately also in feminism in the whole idea of empowerment. That whole that whole uh, aspect of like that whole discourse of talking about like uh, investing in the individual with power to transform or to do whatever. But I think you're very right in calling that uh, a defanging uh, of this radical potential for growth. And I think that's probably what capitalism has done, like defanging it uh, ongoing. Um, but where do you like the two of you? Where do you see? Um, Radical subversive growth playing out in the world today, and uh, where do you where where where, where are the pockets of this in the world, and where can you where, where does this have any legitimate uh, outlets of subversive growth? Where is it? Where, where is it sprouting right now? You have an example. <sighs> no, I well. Yeah. I really don't know. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, in 2015, this is a good uh, question. I can give an yeah. example. <laughs> yeah, so so do you want to... Uh, that's what, uh, actually, probably the vegetarian uh, is an example of something mm -hmm. in that direction. Mm -hmm. but, uh, well, but the problem is that the problem with... Um, regardless, I mean, I think that regardless of whatever... Becoming a vegetarian is a good thing in so oh, many, yeah, so many levels, but this is just yeah. one thing. But as a as a as an actual anti-capitalist thing, mm. I'm not so sure about that mm. because uh, in in a way, what's just happening? Just talking right about the book. Okay, but, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought it would, okay because the problem right now is, of course, that they are mm. providing all these products and earning shitloads of money yeah. on selling uh, soy. Uh, and it, and it's also so, that you you need to transform the world by, uh, by consuming products. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so it's an individual mm -hmm. strategy. 
And that's a problem. I, 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 I don't know, man. I have an example. Okay. Um, well, something of an example, at least. Um, I mean, well, I have, there are, if, you've, uh, if any of you uh, know the work of Gibson Graham, um, I mean, that's an example of, of post-capitalist uh, kind of communities and ideas of, of growth that where capitalism may be part of that, but it's a pocket rather than the hegemonic order or everything, defining everything. There can be different kinds of economies, and they are speaking of, for instance, indigenous, indigenous economies in certain places in South America and Mexico and so on. But also an example that doesn't come from from uh, that book in particular, because they are facing then another issue, uh, one of the big issues related to uh, the ideas of post-capitalism and local growth ideas or alternative local locally based uh, growth ideas, is that how do we then deal with the translocal issues, uh, ecological disaster? You know, how do we deal with that if? we are giving space to uh, all these local uh, different interests and different ideas of doing so on. So how do we, how do we create uh, a community around the global issues? So that's, that's one of the big uh, issues that they do. But I think that you want to say something to that or... Because no. otherwise I just wanted to give one example. Do one? Okay. And that <laughs> relates to uh, kind of how to organize the space in a way that goes against the hegemonic ways of doing it nowadays. And I think the universities nowadays um, are experiencing, uh, you know, it's, they're going through a managerialization. They are, it's, uh, it's all academic capitalism. We no longer are able to quite distinguish between um, uh, a lot of work done in or the way in which we have to make ourselves citable and sellable and quotable and so on in ways that's like selling selling ourselves. So it's deeply problematic. Of course, there are um, places and people who do not convert to these values. But in northern uh, Spain, there is a university, uh, the University of Mondragon, and they had to deal with uh, the local issue that they uh, just couldn't make it work by following that model. So what they did was that they took the law of Sp laws of Spain, which made it possible yeah. to privatize, mm -hmm. and they made a cooperative out mm -hmm. of their university. And everyone, students, uh, faculty, and administrative staff, and so on, are co-owners of the university. They are democratically producing what this university should be about. Everyone has an equal share in saying what it should be about. And so these things kind of happen, mm -hmm. and I think it's a form of growth because they're producing knowledge and they're producing mm -hmm. value, so to say, but not necessarily according to um, the ideals of capitalism or no, managerialism. No. Yeah, and I think Michel Onfray, the French philosopher, did something to that effect as well. Uh, I don't know exactly not the structure, but it's also an open, or even study without tuition, and, uh, yeah. So, um, any other questions in there? Um, I was expecting to hear about Gibson Graydon um, today, but also in another way, like, they have this notion of the, the iceberg uh, metaphor for the economy, mm. uh, which is 
at you know one tenth is above the water and nine ten tenths are below you can see them. Mm. So it's very similar to the tide, you know, the, the limited restrictive economy is what you can see up here, the money, all this stuff, and then there's mm. the illegal economy and the household economy and you know yeah. which is the kind of feminist angle on it for me, you know, like mm. seeing all the things that women do that are not monetized and they're yeah. not appreciated or yeah. you know, that women and the colonialized people and indigenous people all those all like the all this stuff. Yeah. And and I was wondering how you could kind of make some comparison between them and the tide and, and their you know why is it so radical which I think it is to, to kind of expand what we think of as the economy and what is potential then to you know not to just get a wage which I suppose not it, it's Kind of against the economy, both of the examples, because I don't know where to take it from there. Mm. Yeah, but, well, well, I think, I don't think it's quite different. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, that much about, uh, so I, I don't know how to answer that, but I can say something about why I think it's radical, even though I think it's a very simple thought. Actually, I, I think that, but I had two or three thoughts, and they're all quite simple. Uh, but they entail so much. So, um, so to really embrace them, you need to. It's, uh, it's, it's some work. But it, um, so, what's radical about this way of thinking about the econ uh, economy? It is that you. It, it also entails uh, that you need to think about how you produce yourself, your image, uh, and how this image isn't a fixed thing. Uh, so it, it kind of destabilizes your subject position in the world. Uh, so from that existential point of view, I think it's quite radical. Uh, he didn't, he did call it a Copernican turn, and I think it, it was in a sense when speaking about economy, but, but I think for me it's, it's, uh, it's aligned with the thinking of Nietzsche and, and this, the Copernican turn that he uh, instilled with, uh, for instance, the notions of will to power and so on. And that's, I think, for me at least, that's, uh, I, well, not only for me, it's still quite radical to, if you, if you really, uh, internalize that way of thinking, uh, because, uh, yeah, it's, that's, it, yeah. it's necessarily subversive. But, yeah. I'm sorry, oh yeah, I absolutely think so. I, what I was saying is that I don't necessarily think that there is. I mean, I think that there there may be some difference, but Gibson Graham, they are very rather recent. I mean, Bataille is you know yeah. way back compared compared to, and I mean they the sources they are drawing on are not you know they are drawing on many of those sources that you know totally made sense in terms of the iceberg metaphor but i think that one of the big differences is that they are still speaking of an economy within a notion of uh, of production and reproduction they actually I, I don't necessarily think that they are uh, expand or, or or moving beyond that yeah. i mean I, I know that they are using different uh, words and they are also speaking from a kind of, of a strongly, I mean, I, I love their work, so this is not a critique in that sense. It's just more, I think that's quite different from the type, because I think that the very idea of, 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 of speaking of the sun and this production of excess and so on, it's, and, and that you have something that is wasted and something that dies away and something that is not used. This is not, 
necessarily uh, what happens within. I think that that's not captured within their their concept of economy, regardless of whether they capture all these hidden aspects, so to say. I think they have more of a Marxist uh, framework, even though they don't really want to admit it. And also, I think that um, to think about, for instance, war as a kind of squandering is quite radical uh, and 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 provocative. Uh, uh, but there's something about it that that makes it, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so it's very powerful. I think that's been pointing me is like we're constantly thinking like how much um, energy and identity construction leads to a large arsenal of nuclear weapons that are just sitting there waiting to destroy everything. Um, I uh, is there any other questions? Um, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you regarding your opinion, Fatai, um, how now today the environmental ideal is this infinite circle where there is no waste in production, where everything that you make is ultimately recycled back into, let's say, the circle of production, and that you have, you know, like sustainable clothing. And uh, but, do you think, in Bataille opinions, that would also be a certain failure because it does not transcend ultimately this recycle circle is capitalized upon, and within the kind of like you have a price. It's a value. There's a price to sustainable yeah. clothing. There's a um, recycled goods are considered better or let's say, even more expensive than, let's say, unrecyclable goods. Mm. And mm. Uh, what, what would you think, Bataille? Uh, well, I think, well, the idea of recycling and the idea of making sustainable uh, economies within the global uh, general economy is, is a great idea because it, it's, it, it means that we, uh, that we do not produce that much waste uh, uh, that we need to expose of uh, in, in this uh, uh, general framework. So this is this is a good idea. It's a good idea to uh, to do that. And he, he also, after the Second World War, he, he was also a big uh, supporter of, the, for instance, the, the Marshall Help, uh, because it would produce a, a society where uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily... Uh, um, you, you, you wouldn't feed the discontent of uh, the, society, the post-war society and so on. So, so to, to uh, think about, to make sustainable economies within the economy is still a good idea. But you can still criticize, for instance, is this a break from a capitalist economy, for instance? Is this a break from the homogenic order? Or is it just a reproduction of that? Uh, I think uh, it's, it, it might be better, but it's not necessarily a break. It might it's still reproduce some uh, uh, bad effects and, and uh, some, uh, you know, uh, I'm looking for what... Right? negative consequences? Yeah, not only negative, but to reproduce uh, order that is ultimately uh, still operating within... Uh, uh, framework with suppression and so on, but obviously it, it's a good it's a good idea. It's a better way to uh, to to, to, to I think if you could disconnect the recycling from capitalism, mm. it would yeah. be a different question. Yeah. But in this case, you can't. So, or at least the way it functions now, recycling has become a capitalist. Yeah. Uh, 
way of seeking profit. Yeah. You know. So in that way, it, it, it's reproducing the existing but, and, order. And the thing is, I'm, but that I'm, doesn't mean it doesn't create positive effects. Sorry. No, no, no. no <laughs> it's very good. I was lost. Device is time at least. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think there's one funny thing about that because I, I'm all for recycling. It's a really good idea. Uh, but the thing is that uh, uh, we already have enough. We don't need to reduce uh, the recycling. It's, we're still producing more uh, whilst uh, recycling. Uh, plastic bottles. Yeah, plastic bottles, for instance. I mean, what's about? What's what's what the fuck? What's that about? <laughs> what's that about? <laughs> no, I, I'm, it's true. Go for one Sorry, I was question favoring a bit. Anybody? Um, well, I've been thinking a lot about um, neoliberalism in the or rather what we talked about earlier, what you talked about in terms of potential to assist, mm. uh, in a sense. And when you were talking about uh, or your whole thing, what I thought about was also this idea of attachment mm. as something that is decoupled from neoliberalism, mm. in the sense that uh, with also just a basic narrative, like modern progression all the time, which I think neoliberalism kind of builds on. But also, um, what I wanted to get to was more like these, um, like when you, uh, and then when you talked about, Rebecca, when you talked about the, like the circularity of neoliberalism, or like this absorption mm -hmm. of critique and things like this. Um, Do, are, is it problematic that we don't think about attachment or like the, because the, uh, when you talk about bodies and uh, eroticism, you have like this clear attachment or like this bounding of bodies, if you will. Mm -hmm. And like how, this is a very, very abstract question and I've always no, thought, I, I haven't thought, I, thought about it, but it, just like the, like this idea of linking or even from a democratic perspective, like this idea of linkages and attachments. I think that there is, uh, if I, shall, yeah. okay. I think that there is, um, I hope I've understood your question or comment correctly, if I haven't been correctly along the way. I think that there is a definite um, tendency within the dominant ideologies and frameworks of today to value that which is uh, detached, mm -hmm. um, a detached body, mm -hmm. the the body that is not uh, in any ways limited by any social or material constraints, which can travel freely around the world and network mm -hmm. with equal-minded global people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, and become this ideal self, this global being who can become perfect in accordance to these so-called global standards, because that's an interesting thing in mm -hmm. which everyone is referring to when they are speaking about inevitable growth, mm -hmm. is that we have to live up to global standards. Yeah. And no one is speaking about these global standards in, in a way that these so-called neutral objective global standards were also a product of particular social processes in a particular context at a particular time they were attached uh -huh. but they have been detached over time and have received this uh, as if they could exist without that 
and they become this objective standard. And I definitely think that one of the big issues that we are facing at the moment when we are uh, creating uh, the ideal, the ideas of the ideal citizen, this ever-working, ever-consuming, ever-growing uh, uh, person who's able to become better and better and better, and if they're not good enough, they go to a therapist and solve their issues, and then they leave, and then they're perfect again. This kind of idea of the person is also a person detached from themselves and their own material bodily constraints. And I definitely think that's part of that whole ideology. Does yep. that answer in any way? Yeah, no, definitely. Or I'm just confirming what you're saying. No. Actually, I'm going to try to answer in a totally different way, but in agreement, I think. <laughs> uh, the, 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 one of the texts I wanted to bring along uh, by Emma Christensen is actually called Derealization. So, uh, to self-realization for her, and I think in accordance with Batai, is tied to this notion of producing yourself through work in a capital O. So, what we need, and this perhaps is, uh, I don't know, perhaps it's a provocative uh, um, uh, notion is that you, you you are not to become who you are, as Nietzsche told you we should, is not to become an identity. We should leave an identity politics insisting on our identities can be very problematic if we confuse ourselves with this identity. If this identity is not a threshold towards uh, meetings, intimacy, uh, community, and so on. Uh, so. So it's, for me, uh, I think the answer would be to, to, to work in opposition to egoism and individualism and uh, therefore also uh, neoliberalism. Uh, and I think a lot of critique also on the left wing is still is tied in yeah. to these, uh, these ideologies without uh, being conscious supporters of them. And I think it's very problematic. I think I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know where. I think it's. Yeah. I don't know where to begin. I'm beginning here, of somewhere. Else. I'm saying it now, and I'm, I've said it many other times. But I think it's very frustrating because even though fighting on the same side for social justice and subversive possibilities to creating new spaces. I think it's it's very problematic yeah. uh, and difficult uh, to do. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to see the movement. Speaking of the left wing, it's yeah. interesting to see uh, the particular movement in terms of work and the person as the worker um, from you know the early days of social democracy, where they were speaking about everyone should have the right to work. Whereas now it's not a right, it's a, what's it like? It's a duty. Or a duty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah that's and a, that's a, that's a so, social democratic notion. Yeah. The right, right, and, and duty. Yeah. You have rights and duty, but you have to now you have to earn your rights. That's yeah. a movement from exactly. the nineties. Uh, it's a very, now. Yeah. it's a very, very, very radical movement. Yeah. I mean, and, and that ex exactly, and that yeah. paired with the notion of uh, the dignity of work. Yeah. Mm. Right. Can I comment? Uh, yes. But I just think, yeah, because I, I totally agree, but I also think that this notion of work is also sometimes 
fetishize into also expanding notion work as in like self work. Mm. Mm. That's mm-hmm. a work Except, of well, that's in her questions in Japan. Exactly. Yeah. But that yeah. also that but that also relates to in a way to what I was yeah, identity politics, but also um, we're living in a time of diagnosis, mm. right? Yeah. We're all having a need to categorize each other, so your identity is not only that you're a woman or white or middle class, but you're also someone who suffers from depression. Mm. Yeah. You're categorized and that becomes part of your identity and part of what you have to work with in order to become this perfect being in the world. Um, so, I mean, all of these... I think that's part of it as well. Yeah. I'm gonna have to draw this to a close because we have to be out by ten. Really? Oh my god! It's the old, I, so if you want to ask more questions of um, you and Rebecca, you're gonna have to befriend them organically over time, and then you know uh, the right to. Um, I like to you know give everyone a, a chance to give a round of applause to you and Rebecca for. This. And also the volunteers Please feel free to buy things because this is a commercial enterprise. Just rush to the books. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to part two of Accursed Growth. We really hope you enjoyed this uh, preservation of Arc Books Live. Thanks again to Kobeho Laser. Jon Owen Grimm and Rebecca Lunn, and of course the support we got from Nobor Lukel Ulvel. The ARC Audio Book Club will be back next month where we'll be discussing Claire Louise Bennett's short story collection, Pond. <laughs>